This is the Lazy Women Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Lazy Woman Podcast. I'm Aisha and will be your host on this special episode. And I'm so excited to have a chance to learn from a fantastic person having Dr. Alice Evans as my guest. Uh, I recently attended one of her seminars called um, 10,000 Years of Patriarchy. And after we met, I was lucky enough to have her friendship and learn from her curiosity. Uh, so long story short, uh, welcome, Alice. And how are you since we last spoke? I am great. And I'm so happy to see you again, Aisha. Thank you. So I, I don't want to waste any time. You're writing a book about global history of gender. And I can't wait to read it. But before we moving on to questions about your research, I want to ask, what drove you to work on gender? And how was your journey of questioning patriarchal norms? Okay, great question. So I think when we look around the world, we see this enormous disparity and we see enormous change over time. So over the 20th century, we've seen that all societies have become much more gender equal, but some societies are more gender equal than others. And why is that? What's driven that change? That's what I want to understand. So that's what I'm so that's why I'm studying the history of every country in the world, trying to work out what's going on. Can you tell us a bit what is this great gender divergence concept and what are the most important breaking points in the history in terms of gender equality? Yeah, absolutely. So in the 20th century, we saw this enormous economic and political divergence in outcomes. So especially in Europe, in uh, North America, Australia, and to some extent, East Asia, we see this rapid economic growth, job-creating economic growth. And that's occurred to a, a lesser extent elsewhere in the world. We also see a big political divergence in outcomes with rising democratization in some places less so in others. And Everywhere in the world, female employment rises in response to job-creating economic growth. And women seize those, econ- those political opportunities to mobilize for reforms, to push for their rights. But the rate at which women seize those economic opportunities created by growth is mediated by culture. So in culture where men's honor is contingent on female chastity, then men resist women going out to work. They prefer women to stay at home. So even if there are lots of jobs, even if there's rising growth, then women might still remain housewives. So that explains some of the divergence that we see. So even if there is the economic growth, it's not enough and we need some change in the also social norms. But is, is it these norms mostly tied on religion or, or culture? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it's culture that mediates the way that families respond to economic growth. So, for example, if we compare Latin America and the Middle East and North Africa, in Latin America, with rising secularism and feminist activism, families have 
become much more liberal and they've loosened restrictions on women and women have flocked to the labor market. So we see a huge soaring, soaring female employment. We see massive feminist activism, 200,000 women in the streets of Buenos Aires demanding government action against femicides that is killing women. So we see enormous social change in Latin America. And the exact same level of economic development, we see far less social change in the Middle East and North Africa. So across the Middle East and North Africa, young men, on average, are no less patriarchal than their grandfathers. There's been no generational change. And why is that? And it's partly due to religion, absolutely, as you say. And I'm wondering the case of Soviet countries in terms of this economic development, because uh, you mentioned in your seminar they they were more likely to have a job because there was a need in in labor market. But if we look at their like normal life, could we see a change in the in the domestic work or still the woman making the domestic work for for their household? Okay, so that's a great question. So communism was run on a model of extensive growth that central planners set very high production targets. So factories had to produce a lot of stuff and they also set very low wages. So a man's earnings could not provide for a whole family. And factories wanted to achieve those high production targets. So they hunted and hunted for more and more labor. So they recruited more women and women seized those jobs because men's earnings were not enough. So female employment was very high, and not just in terms of labor market participation, but also advancement. In economics, 44% of Russian economists are women. Russia has the highest share of female business managers. In post-communist countries, there is a very small gender gap in competitive chess. So women are thriving economically and in terms of business. But under totalitarian communism, Feminist activism was suffocated, right? There was no activism. So it remains a very niche, outlier, minority. Things like sort of pussy riot, which the vast majority of Orthodox Christians and Russians don't identify with. They're seen as extremists, crazy extremists. And so, and so that means that questioning all these patriarchal privileges, challenging the government of women's bodily rights, political representation, reproductive rights, protection from violence... That that's hardly ever happened. So in China and Russia, there are very weak protections over domestic violence. There's also not many people questioning ideas about you know men and women's roles in the home. So you really need that feminist activism to cultivate a sort of feminist consciousness, which is really important. Because otherwise, people just you know assume oh well, that's women's jobs. That's what women should do. And if they don't have enough time to do it, then their mothers will help them out. And I'm also wondering another thing that why the feminist activism became important in the west of the world. It's it's probably not only about the Soviet countries, but uh, why why it it started there. Okay, I think really important drivers are democratization, the enlightenment, and secularism. Like, for example, if I think it's, it's so instructive to learn from Latin America, for example, as people become more secular, as people start questioning what the church tells them to do, as they stop assuming that, you know, in uh, Chile, for example, when a woman was raped, it was seen as her shame, her stigma, and she carried that burden alone. 
and she remained silent. She was so humiliated. She was so embarrassed. She felt so dirty that she didn't tell anyone. She didn't ask anyone for help. And as long as women think that it's their fault, you know, what was she wearing? What was she doing? They blame themselves and they don't press for accountability. And the perpetrators know that they can do it with impunity. So what's been so powerful in Latin America is capitalizing on democratization, but also a culture of resistance. So in Latin America, there have been so many protest movements, picateros in Argentina, that's unemployed workers. There have been gas price wars. There have been water wars in Bolivia. There's a huge regional network of feminist activists, and they all wear green. They wear green lipstick. They paint their cheeks green. They have the ring green handkerchief. And that's all to symbolize this feminist resistance. And that tells other women that I'm with you and I support you and I believe in you and we're fighting for these rights together. Because when you see other people championing feminism, you become emboldened. You think that change is possible. And so when Latin American countries can learn from their peers, so as Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, etc., Uruguay, increasingly liberalize reproductive rights, then other countries realize that's possible. And now across Latin America, 11 legislative assemblies have gender parity. So Chile's constitutional assembly is 50% women. So all these things is being emboldened, realizing that change is possible and mobilizing for it, pushing it, demanding it, whether that's in terms of domestic workers' rights, reproductive rights against domestic violence, or, and they, I think, no, in Latin America, they often call it machista violence. So they're naming it as the problem of male violence. So that, that point about being inspired by peer countries is really important. Whereas, in much of the Middle East and North Africa, where many women often remain at home, they have, their primary identity is as mothers and as housewives, and there are stricter restrictions on feminist activism and all activism generally, right? So in, in, uh, in Egypt, where there have been crackdowns on civil society, it's so much harder to mobilize against sexual harassment, for example. And so that sort of just breeds a culture of despondency. And even in universities, you know, we see growing censorship in Turkey and in India. And all that, all that is stifling a culture of dissent. You know, in the democracies where there are no restrictions on what you can say or what you can write or what you can think in a university, then a university cannot become a breeding ground for young people gathering together, sharing ideas, thinking, hey, this isn't right. Hey, we should push against this. Hey, let's try to change this. But if you're in a situation where you never see that kind of resistance, or worse, you see it being penalized, then you think, well, you know, a university is just a good place to get grades, credentials, and then let me work, work out my own life and get a job. So the culture of resistance is really important. And we see also a lot of change across the Europe in terms of gender inequality, like we have the case of Northern Europe. <laughs> And what, what made them so different in their roots of the gender roles or, or patriarchy? Okay, so I think Scandinavia is so fascinating because historically they were at, the Vikings were actually polygamous. So this is a sort of winner-takes-all model. So the most powerful guy, the most dominant guy, gets as you know, many ladies as he likes. But that means that the other guys are effectively incels. Like they can't get brides. And so that motivated outward expansion and conquest. So that was quite the violent society. But then I think a big step change was Christianity because that imposed monogamy. 
So when you have monogamy, then there's less violence, less conquest. And then it became more, so it became Christian. It became, then the social Democrats gained uh, increasing power and control and with wealth, growing job opportunities, rising female employment, but also really importantly are their family policies. So in Sweden, they have well-paid and non-transferable, men are entitled to paternal leave and men increasingly take that paternal leave. Women have far greater support if they're mothers, working mothers. And so that enables women to focus on their careers more. Uh, What's also really important across Europe is they have proportional representation, proportional representation whereby, uh, so that's distinct from majoritarian representation and proportional representation tends to yield more female leaders. And those female leaders, you know, might do things in women's interests. So I'd say it's a bit, it's a story about religion. It's a story about job creating economic growth. It's a story about social policy, women leaders. Yeah, a bundle of things. Hi, lazy woman. My name is Stara. I'm Dutch and grew up in between both the Netherlands and the United States. I took a few days to think about this question as I found it difficult to pinpoint what exactly the biggest obstacle women face is. In comparison to the United States, where I immediately thought of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and legislation increasingly moving to restrict or even completely ban access to abortion, the Netherlands seems to do pretty okay with abortion having been legalized since the mid-80s. In fact, according to the European Institute of Gender Equality, the Netherlands ranks third within the EU on the Equality Index, having a score of 77.3, a score of 100 indicating full equality has been reached. However, after speaking about it with my mom, she pointed to the gender wage gap as well as the underrepresentation of women in leadership positions. She mentioned the concerns of earning less than her male counterparts at work despite her role being similar or even exactly the same. And she wasn't wrong. Namely, according to the OECD, in 2020, female employees earned 13.2% lower on average than men in the Netherlands. Something I found to be surprising, considering how high the Netherlands ranks on this equality index. So, while women in the Netherlands have access to healthcare and abortion rights services, something which is fantastic and other countries should be striving towards. There's still a lot of progress to be made in terms of women's ability to participate equally and to participate fully in the economy. And so, yeah, I think women's participation and representation in leadership positions is one of the bigger obstacles in the Netherlands. Hello, lazy women. I'm Viola. I come from Italy and uh, I've been thinking a lot about your question and it's not that easy to to develop an answer also because I think like the main issues are not so visible here in Italy, even though, of course, they are really big and uh, of course, there are a lot of them, both issues and boundaries that women have to face like every day. But um, also, I've been speaking a lot to um, all my girlfriends and uh, asking them the same question. And I think that all the problems that women have to face nowadays in Italian society 
have to do mainly with objectification and with social prejudices, such as, I don't know, you are women, so you're more likely to like humanities rather than, I don't know, technologies. Or you're a woman, so it's more likely that you love to stay in the house and clean. And uh, yeah, probably you want to have a family. And if you don't, then it's quite strange. Whereas if you're a man, there are no such prejudice. Of course, also men do suffer from, you know, being like victims of prejudices, but it's different, of course, as always. And um, so I would say that's the two main issues here in Italy still. We, we do still have many problems about like, I don't know, any kind of consequences of objectification, such as catcalling or, you know, like expectations from how your body should look like, how you should look like, how you should behave and all these kind of things. So... I think these two are the main issues here in Italy. So I'm originally from the Czech Republic. Yeah, the question is, where shall I even start? So we are currently having our own local Me Too-like campaign, I'm assuming. And one of the biggest issues is uh, definitely secondary victim blaming. So a lot of the victims um, of sexual harassment are actually really scared of uh, coming forward to report the perpetrators mostly because they know that neither the police uh, nor the courts are really gonna believe them. Or if they do, they will just keep cross interrogating them in such a, like, let's say, violent, vulgar manner that it's really difficult to, to withstand and it's extremely frustrating and also really, let's say, violent uh, towards, towards these women. And it also scares of everyone else, you know, who might have been a victim of the same perpetrator as well to then come forward themselves because they see how they might be treated and also by the public because there is always this discourse of you know maybe she was just being dressed provocatively or she wants to somehow get on you know the fame of this perpetrator or something and just like get something out of that for herself and it's it's really really sad sad to see um, i'm hoping that with all the movement now to possibly change uh, the definition of what, for instance, a rapist or sexual violence, we might get somewhere to a better place. But I'm not I'm not that hopeful, to be honest, on maybe less dark, <laughs> dark uh, topics. The issue obviously is uh, we don't really have that many women uh, in leadership, neither in business nor in politics. There is also this expectation, obviously, of women taking care of most of the domestic chores. So the idea of a second shift is very, very prevalent in the Czech society. So women are the main caretakers, but they are also the ones who are uh, taking care of all the house chores and uh, also have this like mental load, you know, like they are the ones who have to know about the birthdays of all the family members and maybe like get all the gifts, but also plan holidays and all of these other things, dentist appointments, you, you know the drill. So that is definitely a massive issue still. And yeah, on top of all of that, you are also expected to cook, you know, so no, that's, uh, that's really still deep 20th century, unfortunately. And yeah, in, in, in general, I think it's quite difficult to actually see nice female role models in uh, society, you know, like either they decide to be more of a housewives or they're just 100% careerists. Uh, it seems like there is almost no middle way to go about these topics. And whenever you try to maybe have some kind of a discussion or dialogue with family, relatives and stuff, you're just being seen as this weird one who is trying to start some kind of social revolution 
which we are, to be honest. So let's let's try to do that together. So I'm originally from Hungary. And amongst many, some of the biggest challenges women are facing in my country right now are financial insecurity and poverty, lack of appropriate education, especially when it comes to reproductive health rights, deeply ingrained patriarchal norms and structures pertaining all spheres of life, the government's demonization of the LGBTQI community and the term gender as a whole, and finally, the narrowing of abortion rights. A recent law in Hungary makes it obligatory for women to listen to the heartbeat of the fetus before aborting. So unfortunately, the list is long and I could still go on and on. But in Lazy Women, I hope that with our activism, we are also raising awareness against these trends in, in any ways we can. And if you agree, then please join our fight. You mentioned some lagging, uh, lagging countries or, or regions in terms of gender equality, like the Middle East or the uh, North Africa. So what, was, what is the first thing needs to change in these countries? Like, should it be start with uh, education policies or, or it should be start with economic developments? Okay, so that's a great question. So first of all, You know, that's something for those, the people, the citizens of that country to decide. Uh, so I have no view on it. You know, it's totally up to them. Now, education is interesting because actually in many Middle Eastern countries, we do see gender parity in education. In Saudi Arabia, women are fantastically educated, but they then prefer, they choose to stay at home to become wives and mothers. And so we see this across the world, actually, that female education is not a sufficient condition for female employment. What happens is as men become more educated, they want educated wives to be good mothers. They see educated women as good mothers, so they prefer them as wives. But a man's honor is still contingent on female chastity, or men prefer housewives. They want a woman there to look after them and to look after their children. So women remain at home. The big step changes are with job-creating economic growth. Then women increasingly seize those economic opportunities. And that's what we saw in Anatolia, for example. From 2003, when, when there was job-creating economic growth, female employment increased massively in Turkey. Women sought those jobs because you know the cost of living was high and women wanted to provide for their families. So female employment always rises with job-creating economic growth. The other important part is the feminist activism. So as long as you have authority. Now, at the moment, 64% of people in the world live in an authoritarian society. So most people live in an authoritarian society. So again, that not only inhibits feminist activism, but it breeds a culture of despondency and apathy. You know, if you don't see people challenging, if you don't see people pushing, you know, you come to just focus on your family and do as best you can. Yeah, and it's also important, as you said, um, having an education to to be able to criticize the system you live in. It's it's not only about having the formal university education for women, but we need something more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's about seeing your community change. So one thing I learned and I found fascinating when I was in Turkey is like, for example, recently in Turkey, there's been massive expansion of universities. 
more and more universities. And this is really transformational because if people migrate to a new town or a new city for their university, if they live alone, if they live independently without parental supervision, then a number of things change, both to them as people and also to those places. So men, for example, who've always been, you know, nannied and mollycoddled their whole life, might start doing the domestic work themselves, might start cooking and cleaning for themselves. That's a big step change. And many men I interviewed say, you know, that made them feel that it's no big deal, that they can do it, and then they continue doing it later. Or women might start making their own choices, you know, without family supervision, without family guidance, without family protection, and get a taste for that independent living and like it and want to keep it. And also, if families cannot see what women are up to, if they cannot monitor them, if they cannot, in a family, honor is not spoiled by women hanging out with guys, then women are much more inclined to experiment, to socialize with guys. So in Mardin, there's a Starbucks where young men and women hang out late into the night. And I was really surprised to see that. I did not expect that. In Mardin, you see men and women chilling out and relaxing in coffee shops. And that actually makes it normal and socially acceptable for any woman to go to that coffee shop because it's now no longer a male-dominated space. Same in Konya. I interviewed people who said the you know, what's happened in the past five years is unbelievable. You know, previously, if a woman walked down the street in sort of the gold trading area without wearing a hijab or without dressing very modestly, that she'd be the only one and everyone would stare. But now it's much more normal. You know, you see men and women just hanging out and chatting at the bus stop. Because there are so many students, because they're all doing it, it changes what's socially permissible and acceptable in the place. And even when I interview very religiously conservative people, I think, well, what do you think about this? And they say, well, that's just inevitable. Yeah, I think universities are super important. We definitely see that in Turkey. And I'm wondering your experience in academia, like how often you encounter patriarchy in your career, especially in the case of UK, because it's uh, like the the most developed countries in sight. I think that within Western Europe and also North America, there's, thanks to feminist activism, there's been growing pressure and people are openly challenged if they appear sexist or if they appear patriarchal. So often universities do try to appear more gender equal, though of course people might be privately doubting women or privately distrusting women's judgment. But a really important thing, which I think is true all across the world, is female friendships. You know, women supporting each other, women mentoring each other, women encouraging each other. You know, for example, a man might tell a woman, you know, What do you know? She knows nothing. Or what are you talking about? Or who, who even are you? Whatever. And a woman might take that and lose confidence in herself. Or she might just accept it. And that might really, you know, blow the sails out. But if she talks to female friends who encourage her, who support her, who celebrate her victories, then that can be really important. So be, so I, I'm not going to deny sexism. That's real, but it's changing thanks to feminist activism, both openly, you know, challenging, critiquing every instance, and uh, and also female friendships, which are very important, like ours. Yes, definitely. I I feel really inspired when I met with you because you were like not only talking about um, scientific things, but encouraging the other people 
like you can also do it <laughs> with this excitement. Um, sometimes you uh, you share your work or your, not sometimes actually all the time you use Twitter as a like noting your research and asking people what they think about your uh, about your results. And there are always people who try to convince you uh, the otherwise. Like for example, last days I think after you saying Germany is a highly male dominated, there were a lot of arguments and fights under the tweet. Like, oh, it's it's not like that. You are you are taking it wrong. And so, what what do you feel when you share your work with a, such a diversified audience on Twitter? Is it tiring for you or still inspiring? Actually, uh, social media has been enormously helpful, enormously helpful. It's enabled me to connect and learn from people all over the world, right? There are so many people who are happy to share, who want, you know, people collectively know so much more than I do, right? If I want to learn, I absolutely want to learn from them. So it's enormously, enormously valuable. And there are so many friendships I've made as a result of Twitter, of course, There are some people who are just cross and they're just letting you off steam or they're insulted. You know, nobody likes it if they feel that someone is criticizing their culture. Nobody likes that at all. Just as nobody likes it if they're, if someone else is criticizing their children or criticizing their dog, right? We don't like other people criticizing our stuff. That's us. That's for us to do. So I totally get that. I totally get that. It's normal. Uh, uh, so. You know, if I try to understand, try to be sensitive uh, and frame my questions appropriately, then there's a lot for me to learn. So it's not like uh, tiring or demotivating for you. It's you only look at it as a like chance to learn from other people. Well, I'm sure I am sensitive and I get upset if someone I respect, if someone I respect and if their opinion matters to me, then yeah, it is it, painful or, hurt or, you know, you feel, you, I get up, I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want to offend anyone. So I wouldn't like, I wouldn't like that. Um, but, you know, I should try to toughen up. <laughs> yeah, but I, I never understand how people can make a like huge concept. Like it's, it's about their own values. They, they can think that the Germany is not that male dominated, But I can't understand how they, how they be such an angry, like. Well, well, I mean, I think another thing to remember is that maybe if lots and lots of people might view a tweet and, you know, think nothing of it, it's only the people at the extremes who are riled by it who want to see. So what we're seeing, so, you know, the responses we see are partly a function of selection bias about who gets you know, very passionate about it at either end of the spectrum. You know, the vast majority will just be the silent majority or not to be like, oh yeah, <laughs> Germany is quite patriarchal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And uh, you travel a lot while writing writing this book. And I want to ask you, how, how did these trips contribute to your research? Did you like prove some of your findings or did you change your ideas a lot during this trip? Oh, hugely, hugely. It was a massive learning curve. No, I'll be honest with you. I initially thought I wouldn't be, I, I initially 
thought, I simply cannot travel. It's too much time. I cannot travel the world and study every country in the world. I thought it was impossible. Uh, so I didn't want to do it. I just thought I was too stretched, but I'm so glad I did. I learned enormous amount. I learned so much about, you know, for example, parents fearing for their daughter's safety and restricting their movements, not letting them visit friends. And that, of course, means that women become less knowledgeable, less confident, less worldly, less street smart, less savvy, while men sort of amass advantage, become more comfortable, confident, and people are confident in them. So I think, yeah, thinking about parents' fear and policing was really important. Thinking about how mothers look after their sons and sons become habituated and accustomed to that kind of female servitude was really important. Also seeing the role of universities in catalyzing cultural change. There are so many things that I'm able to see by comparing societies, by talking to individuals and realizing that heterogeneity. You know, a lot of time when I look at quantitative data, I'm looking at averages. And that blinds me to the diversity within a country. Like I think Turkey is one of the most diverse countries in the world. In a population of 90 million, you've got uh, girls wearing crop tops in Kadikoy. And then, and then in Fatih, you've got uh, Islamic sects where women are covering their mouths. There's enormous, enormous diversity. I think that's more so than any country in the world. And so I need to be in a place to talk to so many different people. I needed to, you know, speak to Syriac Christians, Alevis, Sunnis, uh, Syrian refugees, cleaners, domestic workers, teachers, drivers, bank managers to understand all that diversity. So it was so helpful in enabling me to think of things I hadn't realized. It was, it was brilliant. Uh, but the most important thing that I took from my experience in Turkey was definitely, and I know this will sound soppy, but my friendships, like I, I, people were incredibly kind to me in both Turkey and in India. And then earlier when I was in Italy and Morocco, and I've just met so many wonderful Amazing. And it's just learning about these individual lives and individual journeys and perspectives. You know, everyone's got their own story and that's really valuable. And it helps me build up this bigger picture. It's like building a jigsaw. But you've got to understand every distinct story rather than just think about each country in terms of averages, etc. So it's it's a really important it's really important to make a like field examination in such a research. I found it very helpful. I found it very helpful, especially as me being an outsider, but it's, and especially being able to contrast and compare and see what different places are like, like being in Konya as compared to being in Kadikoy, right? You, there's a bit, there's a big difference, which you can only see by being there, right? And I need to travel more. I need to, to learn. So next up, I'm going to Alabama. And I'm really looking forward to that. I think that'll be very exciting going to the US South. Because my next question is, why is the US South so patriarchal? Why do they have so many male leaders in business and politics? Why is the rate of gender-based violence so high? Why are there restrictions on abortion? So I'll be going to stay in Alabama and Georgia. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm very excited. And, and how many trips uh, you are planning to do until you write this book? I want to just keep traveling as much as I can. 
Really, I want to go to Latin America, to Chile, to Brazil, to Mexico, then to China, to Russia, to Indonesia. Like, I think Indonesia will be fascinating, right? Because that's a Muslim country, but actually quite high rates of female employment. So I want to understand, you know, and it was a uh, Sufi uh, Islam that spread into into Indonesia. So I want to understand that different kind of Islam and how it was mediated by local culture, etc. So it's going to be great. I'm super, super excited. And I'm so excited to read your book and I just want to read it soon. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> But we need to wait a bit, I think. Because it's such a, I don't know, such a general topic to study. You are trying to find the roots of patriarchy in everywhere. And, and what is the difference? What is the pattern? And it's amazing. Well, it'll be amazing if I can do it. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> You're already doing it. <laughs> uh, my last question is, you recently shared the objects of of pleasure for women found in pre-conquest period in the Philippines. If we look at in this sense, how is it that in almost all societies, sexuality has become a woman's obligation to men's pleasure and how, how it can be that difference in the Philippines? Oh, yes. Yeah. So the pre-colonial Philippines was really interesting because... Actually, women travel great distances as independent traders. They can divorce easily and just take half the shared slaves. And uh, and they were in such a position of autonomy and authority that they could insist on their own sexual pleasure. So that was a very different society. Now, I'm not aware of any other societies where women's sexual pleasure came first. Like I'm just, not, Even today, I don't think there's any society that does that. Right, apart from pre-conquest Philippines, so I think definitely that deserves further. Now, what was it distinct about the Philippines? I think one, I mean, it could be that this was a matrilineal culture, or at least bilateral, and they didn't have inherited wealth. Land had low value, and so if you don't have valuable land, then you don't need patrilocal clans to gather together to defend that land. And so women don't move into a new family when they marry. So there was a slightly different kinship system. There's a slightly different material base to that system. Uh, I think that's important. But definitely Southeast Asia was historically much more gender equal. And that's a big region which deserves a lot of scrutiny and attention. I agree. Yeah, and it's it's amazing to see that how the, I don't know, how the ownership of land in somewhere can lead to uh, like having your Uh, sexual life as a priority <laughs> for a society. It's a yeah, yeah, yeah. Because once, well, I think it's because that if it's a, a patrilocal clan that owns the land and they want their son to inherit it, so they're so because a son with lots of nice land can attract more wives and concubines. Then you want to ensure the purity of the male line, and if you want to assure the purity of the male line, then you need to cloister women to keep them secluded, so you know it's your sons and heirs who get all that land. Another thing is that when you have patrilocal clans, when those societies expand, then you and male-dominated religions form. Those religions tend to prescribe female chastity and gender segregation, and I think that was a way of reducing male sexual jealousy. So when you see social expansion, societal expansion, so big cities tend to lead to 
big moralizing religions, and then you have this sort of patrilocal, pat, pat, patriarchal or religious orders. It was an amazing answer. Thank you. <laughs> I think I'm out of my questions. Thank you, Alice, for for sharing your knowledge with us and your curiosity. And uh, for the ones who enjoyed this episode, please check the amazing podcast of Alice, Wrecking Our Priors, to find more because she is explaining everything really detailed in her own podcast. So thank you all. Oh, my total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was a total pleasure and it's lovely to see you again. Thank you, thank you. And I hope to see you soon again. <laughs> you too.